Our sermon text for today is from the book of the prophet Haggai, and we're going to be in Haggai 1. And as you open up your Bible, I'm going to stand here and watch you flip through it, looking for that book. No, I won't do that. Um, Haggai is second to Obadiah, the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's size does not match its importance. Haggai is often preached when a church is starting a building program. No, we're not doing that. We need a lot of help with our buildings, but that's not what we're doing. We believe the Lord has great and deep things to tell us from this book today for our lives and for our church. Here's what Haggai 1 says. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast, and on all their labor. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. And the Lord their God had sent, as the Lord their God has sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. The truth often hurts, doesn't it? Yet the truth often heals. But how can we use and seek the truth to heal and not to hurt? Have you ever interacted with people who say, who make remarks, and they may be rude, And then they justify themselves by saying, at least I'm honest. Is that how God wants us to speak the truth? Is that how God wants the truth to abound among us? Is that how God himself speaks truth? John 1, 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
Truth that heals is truth that comes infused with grace. It is truth that is spoken for the benefit of others. Today I want to consider from the book of the prophet Haggai how God enables his people to change by speaking truthfully to them. To use a more biblical word, how God enables his people to repent as he confronts them with truth and grace. Now, you may be saying, Pastor Lucas, I've tried to change. There are certain things in my life that I know will never change. I've tried to overcome my sin many times. It is impossible. Friends, the message of Haggai is this. Repentance is possible. Change is possible. When we seek it through the power that God supplies. That's the caveat. When we seek it through the Lord. Now, a little bit of the context of Haggai. Perhaps some of you have never heard a sermon from Haggai. Perhaps some of you have never read Haggai. Perhaps some among us, today's the first day that we've even heard the name Haggai. By the way, you can pronounce it Haggai or Haggai. Both pronunciations are fine. But Haggai was a prophet. What does that mean? That means that he spoke from God to the people, right? A prophet directs God's word to the people. A priest directs the people's word to God. Phrases like, declares the Lord, the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord. They appear over 23 times in these two short chapters. Haggai was a post-exilic prophet, which means that his ministry took place after the Babylonian captivity, as the people returned home. His book is outlined by four prophetic oracles, and we actually have specific dates for them because we know the dates of the Persian king Darius. So all of Haggai's prophecies took place be between August and December of 520 B.C. Haggai was a contemporary of Zechariah. He likely was a prophet that spoke before Zechariah. Zechariah likely drew from Haggai. One of the reasons why I believe that is because in the canon, uh, Haggai appears first. And every time that Haggai is mentioned in the book of um, Ezra, uh, he's mentioned with Zechariah. But Haggai always goes first. Haggai and Zechariah. Just like Zechariah, Haggai is one of the 12 minor prophets. They're not minor because they're minor in importance. They're minor because they're shorter, comparing them to prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. Outside of his book, very little is known about Haggai. Uh, there are some mentions of him outside in the canon. His name means festive or holiday. That's a great name. Ezra mentions Haggai twice in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. And actually, these chapters give us the historical context of the book, what was happening to the people of Israel as Haggai was prophesying and as he was writing down his prophecy. So it would be great if you went home today or sometime this week and you actually read with your family the book of Ezra uh, and really focused on chapters 4, 5, and 6. It will help you understand the big picture of this two-week series. But in order for us to understand Haggai, First, we need to understand where it lies within the context of the Old 
Testament. We need to understand its broader context. Right? If, if you are following a chronological uh, scripture reading, um, you know, some people do that throughout the year, beginning January, finishing in December, you realize that about now you're starting the New Testament. Most of the Bible is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the only set of scriptures that Jesus had. So it is fair to call the Old Testament Jesus' Bible. And so often we overlook it, don't we? We know a few stories here and there. Right? We know the story of Abraham. We know a few stories about David. But the entire Old Testament reveals Christ to us. The entirety of it. So we need to spend time in it, paying close attention to it. Before the people of Israel was given the land, the promised land, the land of Canaan, they were given a set of laws, and they were to obey these laws. They committed themselves to obedience. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 28, by the way, one of the key chapters of the Old Testament, God promises to bless his people if they obey his law. But he also promises to curse his people if they break his law. And this curse would be a reverse exodus. You came into the promised land, but this land will be yours according to obedience. This obedience will cause you to leave the land. That happened. Didn't take very long for Israel to disobey in God's law in significant ways. After centuries of patience and long suffering, God kept his promises. He sent the northern kingdom into exile in Assyria and the southern kingdom into exile in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed, its walls, and the temple. By God's grace, after 70 years, under King Darius, the very king that we are hearing about in this book, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, they were able to return home from exile. They were given free freedom to rebuild. Rebuild the walls under Nehemiah. Rebuild the temple under Ezra. The temple needed to be rebuilt. And under the leadership of Ezra, the foundations of the temple were rebuilt. And an altar was raised and sacrifices were reestablished. But as opposition arose, especially from the Samarians and Samaritans and people from the north who knew that when Israel prospers, Israel becomes strong. When Israel is in a right relationship with his God, Israel becomes powerful. Under opposition from these people that did not want to see the prosperity of the people of God, the progress stalled. Foundation was there. A temporary altar was there. But the house of the Lord was forgotten. And here is where Haggai comes in the picture. About 20 years later, the prophet calls the people to return to the Lord. By the way, that's the main function of a prophet. It's calling the people to faith and repentance. Prophets do, did, foretell the future. But most importantly, prophets foresell the truth of God. Prophets call the people to faith and repentance. So the message of Haggai is for us because we must live a life of faith and repentance day in and day out. 
So today we're going to consider from Haggai chapter 1. We're going to consider three ways in which God imparts grace for the people of Israel and also for us. So that we can pursue a grace-empowered repentance. So that we can truly change. By the way, I have three points. My first point is by far the longest. Okay, So when I am several minutes in my first points, don't fret. Points two and three will move fast. So let's consider first point number one, grace-filled rebuke. Notice how the book starts. It gives us a specific date, right? The sixth month of the first day of the month. That's August 29th, 520 B.C. History. We are reading history as we read in the Bible. All of it. A specific reference to a specific time to a specific figure in history. King Darius. Friends, the Bible is not merely a book of nice stories. They're not meta-narratives that should help us interpret the world. They do that, right? But the Bible is history. We are reading God's history, the the history of his people here. The Bible records to us God's actual plan of salvation for his people in space and time. This is why when we hear the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, we listen. Because God has spoken in history. And he continues speaking today. As a matter of fact, he's doing that right now. In verse 1, we're introduced to some of the main figures in the book. We meet Haggai, and he's the prophet. And then we meet Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the governor or the king. Which one? Well, we're going to hear more about Zerubbabel next week. And then Joshua, the priest. This is not Joshua from the book of Joshua. This is Joshua from the book of Zechariah, the priest. Now, in the second year of this Persian king, Darius, God spoke to Joshua, the spiritual leader of the the people. But he also spoke to Zerubbabel, the political leader of Israel. And, And what does he say? He speaks to them about the people. These people. You hear that? Often when God speaks of his people, he speaks of my people, my chosen portion, the apple of my eye. But but do you hear the distance here? He's speaking to the leaders of the people about these people. Clearly a rebuke. The time they say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The Lord is rebuking the people because God is being ignored. But why are they saying that it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord? Look at verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies in ruins, they're busy Not just building a structure so they can have a roof over their heads. But making their houses look nice. Meanwhile, God's house is in ruins. They're saying today, it's all about me. Tomorrow, I will worry about God. It's a dangerous position to take. But God doesn't need men to build him anything, does he? God made the whole universe. Do you think it would be too hard for God to rebuild a temple? Couldn't he do it himself? As a matter of fact, we heard this reading earlier 
King David wanted to build God a house. And what does God say? No, you're not going to build me a house. The Apostle Paul says, The God who made the whole world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. God could rebuild the temple himself, and God doesn't need the temple. God does not need men to serve him. Men need God in order that they can serve and worship him. The reality is that it is Israel who needs the temple to be built. The temple is where God promised to dwell among his people in a special way. It is Israel who needs God to be with them. The covenantal promise that God made to dwell among his people was fulfilled in the temple. Exodus 25, 8, as God is establishing the purpose of the tabernacle, which preceded the temple, God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The Lord is telling the people, my presence among you is the greatest blessing you could have. So stop being selfish with your own kingdom and come serve my kingdom. Friends, there is a direct correlation here between God's blessing and God's presence. But there's also a direct correlation between the neglect of God's presence and the absence of God's blessing. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is the prophet Haggai. Listen to the consequences of the people's neglect of God's temple in verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And listen to this one. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. We're feeling some of this in our present, current situation, aren't we? I mean, we have filled the packs on the middle class and on the poor that inflation brings about. Now, I grew up in Brazil in the 80s. 80s and early 90s. And I saw inflation on the 40 percentile. Not a year, a month. That means every other month, prices would double. You know what that felt like? At the end of the month, there was always more month than money. And this is exactly what is going through, or is Israel is going through the same exact experience. But Israel is going through this because the Lord is teaching them that when you build a treasure for yourself and you forget to build the kingdom of God, rust and moth will eat your treasure. But when you Seek the Lord, His kingdom, and His righteousness. Everything else will be added unto you. The Lord is in control of all things. Look at verse 9. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I, the Lord, blew it away. Friends, the concept of God bringing about hardship might be foreign to you. But God is in control of every adversity we face. Does that give you hope? You know, I remember when I realized that God is sovereign over every affair of man. I was reading through Isaiah. 
And when I got to Isaiah 45, I simply could not argue with God's sovereignty over every affair of my life. Friends, when God is sovereign over our suffering, He is in control of it. When God is sovereign over our suffering, He can use it for His purposes. Satan is not ultimately in control of what happens to us. God is. And when God brings about hardship in the life of a Christian, He does so because He wants us to know Him more. He wants us to know Him better. He wants us not to forget Him. When all around us goes well, we tend to forget God. When we're able to panel our houses, pay our bills, care for our health, love and be loved, we tend to forget our deep need for God. But God wants us to say in Psalm 119, verse 71, along with the psalmist, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It is impossible to learn the ways of God and not be afflicted by God. It is impossible to know God and not feel the hand of God. We learn most when we suffer. And God knows it. And He uses that for His glory and for our good. It is better to suffer and know the Lord than to prosper and forget Him. Now, I don't think we're called today to worry about the building of a temple in Palestine. I don't think that there is application for us today. I don't think either that Haggai is calling us to rebuild this place here in 2503 Country Club Road, although we are called to be good stewards of the facilities that the Lord has given us a pastor that uses Haggai as a temple building strategy has misunderstood the application of Haggai to modern day believers. Ultimately, the promise of God being presence, present with us has already been fulfilled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But literally, John 1.14 means. This is why when Jesus walked into the temple, he was able to say, something greater than the temple is here. God dwelled in the temple, but in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells. It was the temple, it was in the temple that sacrifices were presented day after day. But Jesus presented a sacrifice once and for all. No more sacrifices are required. The temple was the place where God's people would at times gather. But in Jesus, we become the very stones upon which God builds his temple with Christ himself as the cornerstone. We don't have a physical temple today. Because we have something greater. We have Jesus. Always available. Always accessible. If this building here were destroyed tomorrow, Central Baptist Church would not be destroyed. Because Jesus is our temple. We gather in Him. We come to Him to experience the presence of God. God, in love, rebukes His people. He says, you're neglecting my presence. You're neglecting my worship. You're neglecting me. God wants His people to say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Friends, 
God wants our devotion to him to be so deep that if he stripped us of everything that we call good and gave us Christ, we're able to say, that's enough. That's more than what I need. We're not very different from the people of God during the time of Haggai, are we? Our generation is known for, known for binge-watching TV shows. While Bible illiteracy grows rampant. I think social media reveals the dissatisfactions of our hearts towards the Lord in such a clear way. A service cannot run longer than an hour and a half. But two hours of aimlessly scrolling through social media is perfectly acceptable. Friends, we live our lives before the presence of God. And today God is rebuking us. You have neglected my presence. But he does it because he loves us. It is the job of the Spirit to reveal sin to us. Just as it is, it is loving of a doctor to reveal a hard diagnosis to a patient. It is loving of God to reveal to us our sin. So that we may put our sin to death and be alive in Christ. You may be among us today thinking of sin only as things like murder, adultery, stealing, major things like that. But the Lord reminds us through Haggai that we're all guilty of a very grievous sin. We can live an apparently upright life and yet neglect to delight ourselves in the presence of God. And friends, in this area, we're all guilty. When God reveals our sin to us, he, does, he doesn't simply tell us, stop doing it. He reveals our sins to us so that we can forsake our ways. And run to him for the solution. We don't just sin. We're born with a nature that is corrupted by sin. God's law calls us to love him with our entire hearts, mind, soul, strength. But we don't. We love things. We love people. We love Comforts. We love ourselves. But God is able to work in us at a heart level. God, because of the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, is able to transform not only our actions, but our desires, our inner person, our volition, our proclivities, our inclinations. Friends, we all struggle to love God as we ought. But the solution for that is not within us. The solution for that is within God. We can run to God. And He will provide us with renewed desires. This is the new covenant promise, isn't it? I will remove your heart of flesh and I'll give you a heart. I'll remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. A heart that loves me, that desires me. So today we can say we don't yet love the Lord perfectly, but we love him. We can say the Lord is so working in my heart. The Lord is so working in my life that I don't love my things. I don't love people. I don't love entertainment more than I love God. And, and I'm putting the love of those things to death more and more. Friends, a Christian should see a clear pattern of growth, love and desire for God in His presence 
in their lives. And friend, if you don't see this pattern, if you have not observed in your life a pattern of growing desire for God and His kingdom, friend, that's because the Spirit of God is not at work in you. You need to come to Christ and you need to confess, I don't love God. I might tell people I do, but I don't. I don't love you. I see that my motivations are all turned inward. Would you, would you forgive me of my sins? And would you teach me to love God over all things? Christ says, if we don't hate family, mother, father, brother, sister, if we don't hate ourselves, we're not worthy of being His disciples. Friends, God is able to forgive our sin of selfishness. And He is able to change the direction of our lives. Give us a passion and a desire for Him. Would you trust Christ today to transform you, to change you? Would you confess your sins and rest on His finished sacrifice on the cross? Would you trust in the Spirit that He gives you so that the Spirit will reveal to you day in and day out, day by day, where God is not Lord of your, of your life, of your heart, and where you need to submit to Him and His Lordship so that you can build His kingdom and not yours. We would love to talk to you more about that. You know, the connection card in front of you actually has a, has a, a little box that you can check. And you can say, I want to hear more about a relationship with Christ. I want to talk to someone. We, we would love to talk to you about that. At the end of the service, uh, uh, Jeff and Eldine are going to be standing right here. If you need to come talk to them about that, they would love to talk to you about what it means to love God over all things and to come to Christ in faith and repentance. Let's consider now God's filled, God's grace-filled instruction, verses seven and eight. So for the first, for the second time now, God calls us to consider. God calls Israel to consider their ways. The Christian faith, friends, includes a constant call for us to consider our ways. We never come to a point where we just trust the GPS, right? We're always recalculating, reevaluating. The Christian faith includes a constant call to redirect our thoughts and our actions from self to God. Following this charge, God goes on to instruct the people on how to be obedient. Look at verse 8. What should the people do? Go up to the hills and bring wood and, bring, uh, and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God initially rebukes the people of Israel, but now he instructs. He instructs them on how to walk rightly. He first indicts them for walking in folly, but then he teaches them to pursue wisdom. God doesn't leave us to wonder what he expects of us. Friends, we have been given God's word we know what He expects of us. Have you ever thought about the fact that God did not have to give us the Bible? God did not have to reveal the gospel to us. God did not have to give us pastors and teachers to explain the Bible to us. God's instructions to us are an evidence of His grace for us. It is only by God's initiating grace that we can come to know what is expected of us you see no one will ever be able to say or to boast by saying i knew the lord before the lord revealed himself it never happens that way god by his grace reveals himself to us by the way if you want to think a little bit more about this, this coming Wednesday, we're going to be considering Psalm 19. And God being revealed in the heavens, the heavens declaring his, his, his glory, and he also being revealed in his word. So come, 
5 p.m. is dinner. 6 p.m. we'll study Psalm 119 and then we'll, Psalm 19, and then we'll pray together. God, by His grace, always reveals Himself to us first. So do you want to change? Do you want to grow? Do you want victory in this life and in the life to come? Listen to God's instructions. God is telling you today, right now, how to live. Look at verse 8 again. God tells his people, go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house. Go, bring, build. That's all. And what would be the result of this obedience? God's pleasure. Verse 8 is the theological center of this short book. God's glory. The result of Christian obedience is God's pleasure and His glory. In other words, obedience is worship. Obedience is worship. Obedience is proclamation. God is pleased with obedience. And God's glory is magnified through obedience. Through obedience, we demonstrate our devotion to God, and through obedience, we proclaim His glory to the world. Look, the world is watching us, and they're dying to rightly indict us as hypocrites. But they want to do that because, not because they hate us, but because they hate God. And they want to say, God is not there. But as we obey, the world will see our good deeds and will glorify our God. So friends, what greater motivation should we have to obey than to know that obedience is honoring to God. And obedience proclaims the greatness of God. Can I echo the words of Haggai today and ask you to consider your ways? Are you embracing God's instructions? Do you love God's law? Do you desire for God to be pleased with your actions, with your thoughts? Do you care about the glory of God? Do you question? Do, do, do these questions inform the way you live your life? God's pleasure and God's glory should inform all things we do. So if you're here among us today and you're in college or you're starting a career, are you making decisions that will ultimately bring glory to God in your life? Are you pursuing an education or are you pursuing work for the glory of God? Is that bearing, part, bearing weight in the decisions that you're making right now? If you're here among us today and you're dating someone, are you pursuing a relationship with that person for the glory of God or for the glory of self? Are the friends who surround you People who are concerned with the glory of God. People who help you magnify God's glory. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a young, at a point he was young, Welsh doctor. By the age of 23, he had already become the chief assistant clinician to the doctor of the king of England. Dr. Lloyd-Jones was on the fast track to fame and success. Yet, when he sensed the call to pastoral ministry, he quit his pre prestigious career in order to become a preacher to coal miners. Martin Lloyd-Jones was perhaps the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world in the past century. What could possibly motivate such an improbable 
change of career. What could possibly motivate such a drastic change? Isn't it foolish to abandon prestige and fame? Friends, not if the alternative is the glory of God. Some of us might be challenged today to abandon everything. And yes, go preach the gospel to those who have never heard it. Some of us might be challenged today to, yes, take on ministry that we didn't think we could before. Some of us might be challenged today to be more deeply involved with the parenting of our children. Some of us might be challenged today to do things that will look foolish to the world but that will amount to the glory of God. Is God calling you to make decisions today that the world would call foolish in order for His name to be glorified? God's glory and pleasure must be the greatest factor in every decision we make. Finally, let's consider Israel's grace-enabled repentance. One of the most astonishing aspects in this whole chapter happens in this section. It is not astonishing that Israel forsook the Lord, or that the Lord rebuked Israel. It is astonishing that the people actually obeyed. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, the people feared the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They moved from folly to wisdom. They feared the Lord. They, they honored Him and they obeyed Him. I want you to notice in these verses that the people repented. And the people obeyed. Repentance and obedience are two sides of the same coin. Repentance that is not followed by obedience is not true repentance. Repentance is a change of mind, and obedience is the outward evidence of this change. So if you want to know whether or not you're truly repentant of your sins, one good evidence of that would be that you are you're going from disobedience to obedience progressively. Some days are better than others. But you can see a growing pattern of obedience and the forsaking of sin in your life. Now, I think it's also important to mention that obedience often looks more like a wrestling match than ballet dancing. Obedience sometimes does not look grace-filled, but it is. Are you fighting to obey, or do you just indulge in sin? Do you plan ways to escape your sins, or do you plan ways to escape to your sin? Friends, let us not play around with sin, but instead, let us pursue obedience. And how does the Lord respond to the obedience of His people? Look at the end of verse 13. God says, I'm with you. This is covenantal language. God promises Israel in the very beginning, in the inception of the people, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the greatest promise God makes. Is this relationship of God and people. And the obedience of Israel here causes God to reaffirm His covenant with His people. It's like God is saying, though you have been unfaithful, I'm still here. I'm still with you. I am still the same. Now what is the catalyst for this obedience? Look at verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the, heart, the spirits of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. See it? The Lord did it. The Lord gets the glory. The Lord moved in them and stirred up their spirits. This is what grace enabled repentance is. God gives us grace to obey. I love talking about God's work of grace and forgiveness. God can forgive any sinner 
that comes to him in faith, God will forgive every sinner that will come to him. God's grace is greater than our sin. Where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. Yes, yes, and yes, God in his grace forgives sin. But friends, Jesus didn't just die to forgive our sins. He died to enable us to have victory over sin. He died so we can change. He died so we can repent. He died so we can obey. It is by grace that we are enabled to obey God. So, how does God do this? How does He give His grace for us to obey? Do we become like puppets and God simply acts in our place? No. That is not how change works. God gives grace and he is doing that right now. He is imparting grace through the preaching of his word. Through the regular means of grace that is available to us, God is using this very sermon today to call you to repentance and obedience. The word of the Lord came to Haggai. The people heard and obeyed. Now look halfway through verse 14. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second day of Darius the king. The word of the Lord came to the people through Haggai. The word of the Lord has come to you today. Will you repent and obey him? Would you pray with me? Father, work out your power, the power of your gospel in us so that we may not neglect your presence so that we may not build our kingdom, so that we may build yours. Father, help us. We all need to change. We need you desperately. Help us, Lord. Trust your grace and rest on the finished work of Christ on our behalf. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.